goodness. We're in 2 Corinthians 4 this morning. We'll get there in just a minute. But I'd like to ask you a question. Where do you typically store your valuables? Now, don't say it out loud. <laughs> it's probably not safe in our world today, although it should be in the church, right? should be able to talk about that. But where do you store your valuables? Where do most people store their valuables? Do they put it in a, all of it, whatever it might be, in a plastic bag and kind of drop it off at their desk at work? Do they uh, throw it into a sock and uh, toss it into a cardboard box in the garage? Well, not if they're smart. Most people will rent a safe deposit box, right? They will uh, build a fireproof safe in the floor. Uh, they'll create a secret compartment, you know, behind a wall or in a kitchen cabinet. When we redid our kitchen back in Carlsbad, I had the opportunity to take one of those blank corners, you know, where you really can't do much with it. And sometimes you'll put kind of a round, you know, uh, table in there where you can store stuff. Well, we created a secret compartment that had a fake wall. And if you pressed on it, it would pop open and the drawer would come out. And you had these two drawers, you put all kinds of stuff in there. Just before we moved, I thought, oh, gosh, I got to go back to that secret compartment and get it all out of there. And then I had to tell the new owner about it. He was thrilled. Where do you think God hides his treasure? Does he hide it in heaven? I mean, that would be a logical place, right? Put it in heaven, it's packed with unbelievable wealth. You've got streets of gold that are so pure, it's transparent. You've got the foundation uh, made out of jasper, carnelian, diamonds. Entire doors made out of um, huge pearls. But if you guessed heaven, you'd be wrong. God doesn't store his treasure in heaven. Well, what about the universe? The wonders are, are truly breathtaking, aren't they? I mean, the James Webb Telescope is sending back us some incredible things of the Carina Nebula, Southern Ring Nebula, the Stevens Quintet. But if you guess the heavens and the universe, again, you'd be wrong. We might even point to the beauty of nature. All of its flowers, its sunsets, mountains, majesty, ancient trees, waterfalls, luminescent surf. And being from the beach, this is that last slide, you'll see it in just a minute, is one of my favorites. Love to go surfing in that. But if you guess that, you'd be wrong. Where does God store his treasures? Well, if you've already opened to 2 Corinthians 4, you'll find out where he stores it. Because 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 18 tells us that God stores his treasure in you and in me. That's where he chooses to put his most valuable thing. In 2 Corinthians 4, we discover that he puts inside of every one of us what he calls the gospel. Now, it's packed with stuff. And it's this message of good news, of God's grace. But he puts it inside of us so that we will be personally transformed. And then we'll turn around and offer that to the rest of the world. 
He's given us the ministry of reconciliation, Paul writes. And we discover in 2 Corinthians 4 that the power uh, to be personally transformed isn't something we can generate. It's actually something God instills in us to make us better, to make us different, to make us more perfect without fault. So it doesn't matter how many New York Times self-help bestsellers you read. It doesn't matter how many blogs we listen to or personal life coaches we hire. And believe me, I believe in life coaching. I am one. No matter how many New Year's resolutions we actually keep. And by the way, how many of you even remember your New Year's resolution? I don't. Of course, I probably make the same one every year. But we can't fully change ourselves, can we? And we we know this by experience. We know this through trial and error. We cannot completely renovate our lives. We have these broken aspects to them. So this morning, if you find yourself needing a fresh perspective in life, if you find this morning that you are feeling uncertain about decisions to make or how to act, if, if you're um, experiencing a tragedy, you've had dismaying news this week, there's been a heartbreaking moment in your life just recently. God has good news for you. And that is that he has put inside of you an explosive power that he has designed to change you and I and then to change the world. We're going to find four things in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 18. So let's take a look at the first one. The first thing that he tells us here in verse 7 is that God gives the gospel to everyday people to reveal his extraordinary power. This is the starting point. Notice verse 7. But we have this treasure, the gospel, which verse 6 will define it for us. We have this treasure in jars of clay, earthen vessels, some of your translations say. Literally, that can be an actual object, but oftentimes it's the person that God is working with. Verse 6 says, the gospel is the, uh, this treasure is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So this gospel message that he puts in us is this news about Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross, which is so important, right? It's that God took on himself in Christ all of our sins, past, present, and future, at the cross. And when he shouted aloud, it is finished, he wasn't talking about the execution. He was talking about the substitutionary atonement. He took on himself at the cross and paid for them so that we who are under the curse of God because of our wrong actions and evil attitudes and feelings and thoughts, he took care of it all. I love what Paul says in Romans 1. This is probably familiar ground to most of us, right? Romans 1 says, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And notice he says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So it's in the gospel that this this thing, the righteousness of God being made right with God is revealed. And he goes on to say in verse 18, 
For the wrath of God is also revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and foolish in their hearts. They were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. That's a very sad ending to that portion. God gave them up. But he says in the gospel message, we get the righteousness of Christ. And this message is that the gospel rips us out of Satan's clutching grasp. It cancels God's curse against us. It makes us righteous rather than wretched. It it blows off the chains of our slimy sins. And it redirects our eternal destiny from hell to heaven. The gospel does that all. Notice in verse 7, Paul calls it something interesting. He says, it is the all-surpassing power of God. So I want you to picture in your mind's eye comparisons. Picture the pixelating Star Wars hyperdrive. You got that? Compared to the high gear of a self-propelled lawnmower. One is a whole lot better than the other. Think of shopping Amazon and then going to the AMPM corner market. Think about the difference between Elon Musk's wealth and a middle schooler's allowance. The gospel is the all-surpassing power of God. I, I love what Linda Belleville, one of the commentators I've been reading uh, through this series, uh, She writes about this, and she says, the gospel is not merely a message, and this is important to get, folks, it's not merely a message that confronts the mind, but it's an explosive power that turns a person's life upside down. She says, on May 18th of 1980, Mount St. Helens in the Cascade region of Washington exploded with a stunning demonstration of nature's power. The explosion ripped 1,300 feet off the top of the mountain, and it went on to level 150-foot Douglas firs 17 miles away, flattened. She says, we stand in awe of such force and yet forget the far more expansive power that is unleashed in the preaching of the gospel. And it's true. We look at that 17 miles from Mount St. Helens, and we stand in August fear. And yet the gospel's power is all surpassing this. And God takes this powerful life force, this powerful altering force, the gospel message, and he wants to unleash it on the earth. And Jesus carried it at first, and this is what powered his life. It was the Holy Spirit's indwelling, the gospel message being given out. But when Jesus Christ died and was taken to heaven, God knew it needed a new depository. And so what does he do with this? I mean, he could have given it to the angels, right? And wouldn't it be amazing, the shock of seeing angelic figures coming down from heaven uh, to hover over the world's cities and proclaim majestically the gospel message? Wouldn't that be cool if we had our own Redlands messenger from heaven proclaiming the gospel message? But God didn't do that. In fact, it says that the angels long to look into these things because they, they don't have to be redeemed. We do. 
So what does he do? And you notice in this verse, he talks about jars of clay. God put this treasure in jars of clay. So I brought with me this morning a couple of things that I wanted to help us understand this. God could have put the gospel into really strong, intelligent, gifted, powerful individuals, right? Much like my Marine Co. ammo box. I used to store a lot of my tools in this. I got it from one of the Marines from Camp Pendleton. This is a very sturdy box. It's designed to carry weapons. God says, I didn't choose something like that, you know, these gifted individuals. He says, because the problem is when you take the gospel of God, this explosive light illuminating, and you put it in that kind of person, a little hard to see. What you see is the capacity of the individual rather than the supernatural activity of God. In fact, this kind of individual would be able to stand up to all kinds of abuse, right, in life. No, it's still okay. So what does God do? He doesn't pick the strong, the mighty, the wise, the successful. He picks jars of clay. I drilled holes in this this week. It took me a little while. Because this, this is a clay pot, you know, but it's, it's fairly thick. And then over the, uh, around the holes, I just wrote some of our weaknesses. Can I read them to you? Fear, anger, PTSD, unfulfilled feelings, impatient, selfish, uncertain, liar, in pain, sexually struggling, having physical weakness. What are some of the other things that people struggle with in life, in their physical life? Can you think of any? I want to write a few more on here. I've got some empty holes. And you have to speak loudly. Just things that you observe in people's lives. Betrayal. Oh, betrayal. There we go. And I heard another one over here to your right. What was it? Oh, bills. Gosh, yeah, money. What are some more? Grief. I've got two more holes. Anger I've got, selfishness I've got. What else? Those are good. Addiction. I've got pride on there as two, I think. Maybe not. Persecution. Suffering. Covetous. Okay. Now, let's go back real quick. Let's read the gospel's transformative power. Instead of fear, God gives us confidence. Instead of anger, he produces calm. Instead of grief, he gives us comfort. Thank you. Instead of unfulfilled feelings, he satisfies us. Instead of impatience, he makes us patient. Instead of selfish, he makes us kind. Instead of concern about money, he he provides in some surprising ways at times. For liars, there's truth. For betrayal, there is... Loudly? Reconciliation. Reconciliation. And did you know the first sin was actually betrayal? It wasn't eating the fruit. 
We took what God had given us and said, it's not good enough. I want something else. Now, God takes the clay pot and he takes his gospel. I had to cut a edge. There it is. And he puts the gospel inside of us so that the light of it shines out. And this is a very weak vessel. You take a hammer. Oh, no, no, no. I have another service, right? <laughs> yeah, right. I brought it in today and he said, do you have two of those? No. But his glory shines out of this pot, cracked pot. My mom used to tell us kids, you're just cracked pots for God. You're cracked pots. There are fissures in our lives. There are holes in our lives. We are weak. We struggle. But God does this. He picks the weak and the unimportant and those who are broken so that the light of his gospel can shine out. Isn't that a beautiful thing that he does? And the text goes on to say that he does that because he himself desires the glory. He wants the world to know it's not the capacity of our strength that demonstrates the goodness of our lives. It's the supernatural activity of the Spirit within that generates all this goodness. Secondly, he goes on to say, God sustains everyday people to manifest the extraordinary life of Jesus. Look at verses 8 through 12. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, the message of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested also in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. He said, as apostles sharing this message, we face death and danger a lot. But why do we do it? Verse 11, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh, so death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. So Paul points to his own broken body, and he says, I've been feeling the squeezing pinchers of life. I've been getting the stuffing knocked out of me. This is what he means by afflicted. Some of you have the translation hard-pressed. I'm often under the burden of, of life and the load, but God has never let me be crushed. He goes on to say, I've often felt at a loss for words. Can you imagine Paul being at a loss for words with all of his run-on sentences? <laughs> he sometimes didn't know what path to take. He was sometimes uncertain of what decision to make. But he says, I've never been at a complete or panicked loss. We are persecuted. The word there means hunted down. That's quite a different image, isn't it? But we're not forsaken. His enemies constantly dogged his heels, constantly arrived in town after him or went ahead of him and confronted him and challenged him. They tried to stop him. They laid traps for him at every turn, but he said, God has never abandoned me. He says, we were struck down. This is a reference to Lystra where he was actually stoned to death. The text indicates he died there at Lystra. They dragged his body out and dumped him outside the gates. But it says that God raised him back to life, and what does he do? 
He goes back into town and preaches the gospel. What a courageous man. But he says, none of this is of myself. So his point is simple. I've been carrying around, carrying is this idea of communicating. I've been carrying around the the death of Jesus and all of my sufferings with all of the critics and all my exhaustions and beatings so his life could be manifested in me. There's a guy by the name of Alexander von Humboldt. Fascinating guy. He was a German geographer uh, who uh, traveled South America back in the 1800s. In fact, he laid the groundwork for the modern study of geogeography today. And he found this tree growing on these rocks. Hardly any soil at all. Looked like it was dead, it was withered, it was worn out. But he went over and he just cut it to see if it still was alive. And out of it flowed this white, milky, sweet substance. So he called the tree the cow tree because of the white substance he gave me. And it's, it's like, yes, that's what Christians are. We don't always look attractive to our world. We don't always have the answers to everything. We can look pretty withered up and dried out on soil that's rocky, but the life of Jesus is what flows through us. So some questions that are helpful for us, I think. Paul was willing to suffer that kind of wearying life so we today could hear the gospel. Are we willing to do the same for others? Is that what Trinity is about? Notice again verse 12. See it there in your text? So death is at work in us, but life in you. This is why Paul did it. Are we willing to suffer in whatever way it takes so that others can hear this life-changing gospel and see it in our lives? Number three. God graces everyday people to increase extraordinary thanksgiving to God. Notice verses 13 through 15. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into his presence with you. For it is all for your sake. There it is again. So that grace extends, as it extends, more and more to more people. It may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So Paul talked about Jesus wherever he went. And he did it for three reasons. We'll throw these up on the screen for you. Number one, he believed the gospel was true. He says, I believed and so I spoke. Now he's, he's quoting here Psalm 116.10. But he doesn't quote all of that verse. What he quotes is only the first part of it. Psalm 116.10 says, I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. So the psalmist is focusing his faith despite his afflictions. Even though I've been afflicted, I continue to speak. Paul speaks about his faith because of the gospel and the gain it offers. He doesn't even reference, at least in this verse, his struggles. You see, he had seen the power of the gospel to change lives, and that's what captivated him, right? It made his struggles seem light and temporary and insignificant when he saw the greatness of the gospel. So he believed the gospel was true. Number two, he believed in eternal life. He knew this life was not the end of the road. It was the one inch 
on that million-mile rope. And he said, the one inch that God gives me, the however number of years it is, I am going to decide to use it to talk about Jesus personally. I've only got an inch worth of life. I've got to use it well. Number three, he also knew sharing the gospel would benefit others in the end. That's verse 15. It's for your sake. How many of you are grateful Paul suffered for the gospel? Isn't it amazing that all these years later, we get the privilege of having the gospel in us because Paul said, hey, it's for your sake that I'm doing this. At one of our last Trinity Church celebrations, we had a pink cotton candy station. Any of you get a chance to go by there? I think it was Melanie from Kids Camp who was running it. Might have been some other volunteers as well. But if you got cotton candy from there and you took a look at Melanie, what did you see? Wonderful servant covered in feathery cotton candy. Because when you throw that into the cotton candy basin and it starts to spin around, it creates this feathery cotton candy, right? What happens to you? She was just, she looked like a little Energizer bunny, you know, pink. Now, why would she do that? I think she was there most of the evening. And again, there were probably other volunteers. Why did she do that? It was for your sake. So you could have the cotton candy. So you could enjoy it. So you could be thankful. So you could give the glory, not to Melanie, but to God. God is providing this wonderful event for us and this opportunity. So can I ask you this morning, what is it that motivates you to share the gospel? What is it that compels you and I to present this message to the world, regardless of personal circumstances? I'll I'll be honest with you, there have been times that I've had opportunities to share the gospel and I was too afraid to do it. I said to myself, I I don't know what to say. Ah, gosh. So I, I just, I'll be quiet. And the Holy Spirit within was saying, Doug, do it. Do it. I'll help you. And my fear kept me back, right? Some of my brokenness kept me back. You may have had some of the same experiences, but this passage says to us, what is it going to take for us, Trinity Church, to be a place where the gospel is spread into the community and beyond? The directional team and I have been meeting, and we've been going through a really good book. It's a secular book, but it talks about leadership. And in one of the pages, we stopped and we said, how do we define Christians? Because he was defining leadership, he was defining uh, defining those who would be led and their mission and vision. And there's a post-it note in my book. I forgot I had written it, but I came back to it this week as we were going through this chapter. And in, on the post-it note, it simply says this, Christians are people that God has changed and through whom the world is being turned upside down. Isn't that a great definition of Christians? We have been changed, and the world is being turned upside down for us. When the disciples arrived at one of the towns, what was the cry? Those who have changed the world, turned it upside down, have arrived in town. What will it take for us? to be willing to let the Spirit of God shine through us in such wonderful ways that the world stands in awe and says, God is great. Finally, God allows affliction of everyday people to prepare them for extraordinary glory from God. Look at verses 16 through 18. 
And I like the way this starts. So we don't lose heart. Through our outer, though our outer self is wasting away, can I get an amen? And those of you who are under 35, just a little spoiler here, it's coming for you. <laughs> amen. Paul says, hey, we are, we are wasting away. And he's referring to the suffering, but also just to the process of life, the aging, the memory loss, the struggles, the pains. But he says, even though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing. The Greek word there is working for you. The affliction is working for you to prepare you for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I actually struggled this week to get an image of what that meant. The Greek is hooperbule, ice hooperbule. It's massive, incredible, all-surpassing, leading into massive, more incredible, all-surpassing greatness, glory. He says, we're being prepared for this future that has this eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul ends on this positive note, and he admits, yes, it's not an easy life living a faithful Christian life. Yes, the world doesn't welcome the gospel message. The world belongs to Satan. And, and yet God's power sometimes breaks through in spectacular ways. And yes, we can suffer. We can be physically accosted. We can be verbally abused for our Christian witness and faith. But we don't need to feel discouraged. Our true selves, our inner souls, our inner spirits are being renewed day by day. And by the way, in the Greek, it's like this. There's this downward decline, kind of like the stock market. But while that's happening, Paul says there's this upward incline of our inner spirits being renewed day by day. And they, they almost cross in the sense of, yeah, you can experience this, but God is doing this. We have to keep our eyes on the horizon, on the unseen, eternal things. John Piper spoke at the Chicago Legacy Conference, and he talked about this passage. And I've been meditating on his thoughts, and I just want to end with them this morning. So just listen as he writes about the last few verses of this passage. He said, and this was an evening conference uh, in Chicago, he said, did any of you come here tonight hoping, longing, aching that somebody would sing something or preach something that would make you feel totally heartless? Did anyone come desiring to be discouraged, to have the breath knocked out of your hope? To have all your motivation for living stripped away. Did you come here for that? How many of you came here for that this morning? We might feel that way at times. He says, nobody has come here for that. And I would dare to say that nowhere in the world will you find someone who is longing to lose heart. Does anyone say, help me be hopeless? Help me lose my motivation. Help me be so discouraged I can't go on. No. So if Paul is telling the truth here, he has found the secret of an experience that everyone in the world wants to have. The secret of not losing heart. 
And he says, test this positively. If I could offer you a way that day by day you could be renewed in your soul with hope and strength and joy, would any of you say, I don't want that? I don't want the secret of finding real hope day by day. I don't want the secret of finding new strength and new joy day by day. If you really believed I had the secret, no one would say that. And then he says, I want you to notice the contrast in verse 17 between momentary and eternal, light affliction, weight of glory. This light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. So the truth Paul wants to put into our heads day by day is that we will be renewed and not lose heart. It is this. Compared to the endless ages of ages, there are 70 or 80 years which are as nothing. Compared to the weight and the greatness and the glory that we will see, we will and we will be, this inglorious, shameful, painful affliction is light. His yoke is easy and his burden, even a lifetime of affliction, is light. And remember, this is Paul talking, not John Piper. He had really suffered. And then comes what is perhaps the most amazing because of all. We don't lose heart because every single moment of our affliction in the path of obedience, whether from sickness or slander, fallen nation or, uh, nature or fallen people, all of it is meaningful. All of it is meaningful. Man. Can I pause there for just a second and have you think about the things you and I struggle with? It has meaning. It's not just random chance. It's meaningful. That is, all of it, unseen to our eyes, is producing something, preparing something for us in eternity. Verse 17, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This glory that God will show us and give us is beyond imagination. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.9, What no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, God has prepared for those who love him. And more than that, there are special glories in the age to come brought about by your particular afflictions. That's what verse 17 says. Your affliction is preparing, producing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And he concludes with this. That is what I mean by saying every moment of your affliction is meaningful. It is doing something, causing something, bringing about something glorious. You can't see this. The world can't see this. They think, and you are tempted to think, this suffering is meaningless. It's not doing anything good. I can't see any good coming out of this, we say. And that's what you feel if you focus on the scene. To which Paul responds, look to the things that are unseen, the promise of God, Nothing in our pain is meaningless. It is all preparative. Working something good. Producing something. This weight of glory. A special glory for you. Just for you because of that pain. Isn't that a wonderful truth? So this morning as we end with uh, prayer and then our worship team comes back out, would you just take a moment 
and think about the struggles of your life, the brokenness of your life. Maybe you've got your part of your life defined on this clay pot. What is it that makes life hard for you, where you struggle, where you do feel broken and a bit shattered? Would you give it to God this morning and say to yourself, God, I know it has purpose. I know it has meaning. I know it is preparing me for an eternal weight of all-surpassing glory when I do it in the name of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, this, is, this is such a good passage for us, not only because it sounds familiar with the pot and the treasure and jars of clay and all of that, We've probably heard that before. But Father, perhaps we have not heard this morning that all of the afflictions, which Paul describes in fairly good detail, and all that we can add to it from our own understanding, our own experience, our own past, and even present. Father, that those are the things that we can't focus on. What we need to focus on as Trinity Church, as individuals, is the work that God is doing in us to transform us that as we spend time with Jesus, as we walk with Jesus in our daily devotional time, in our prayer life, in our thoughts and in our emotions, and as the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God within us and leads us into the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit, and the world looks at us and says, man, they've got some struggles, but they're joyful, they're peaceful, they're kind, they're gentle. Where does that come from? The message is, it's from God. God, give us that message at our hearts again. Father, help us not to focus on what is seen, because that is so distracting. Help us to focus on what is unseen, the eternal things that are waiting for us as we seek to serve you in this life. So God, help us to do that faithfully. Help us to do that well. Father, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.